good God, today on seven continents, innumerable congregations will worship you. In thousands of languages, they will offer prayers of praise, confession, thanksgiving, lament, petition, intercession, and dedication. They will hear your word, receive portions of the loaf and cup, and give their gifts, sing your praise, witness baptism, and hear that their sins are forgiven, that they are right with you. Many will worship online. Worshipers will include children, teens, young adults, middle-aged folks, and the elderly. They will be new Christians, veteran Christians, and not a few almost Christians, trying out worship for the first time. Most will be mindful that you are our incomparable superior, our great creator, redeemer, and guide for life. Oh God, those of us who worship would feel pangs if we abstained. Worship completes and fulfills us. More important, worship is for us right and fitting and proper. It reaffirms our place in your universe. It acknowledges our sheer dependence on you. It is fitting for us to praise you for your creative energy that has dug out the depths of the ocean and built in the strength of the hills for your generous rains that moisten and soften the earth and for sunshine after rain that causes a part of your beauty to come across the earth in blooms and vines and trees and shrubs. Above all, it is entirely fitting for us to thank you for the great salvation that you have worked for us in the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Oh God, we look forward to the new heaven and earth that will stretch gloriously forward for eternity. Your justice will at last prevail over darkness. Your harmony will at last dispel chaos. Your peace will at last quiet unrest. And your love will at last wipe away all tears. Then all nations and tribes and peoples will gather before you to acclaim your goodness and your mighty salvation. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory, to your everlasting glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Before Brian comes up, we have a short video to show, and it's an instrumental piece uh, that Tim Paskey uh, composed in response to Isaiah 61. Uh, and it's an amazing piece. It's essentially a string quartet where Tim himself is playing all four parts. Let's pray together as God's people before God's word. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your goodness, your love, the generosity that you give from heaven to earth upon the poor and the meek and the broken. Open the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of Christ and the beauty of Christ for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I pray to open the eyes of our hearts because uh, I got here and it's been so long since I preached I forgot my glasses. So my dear friend Larry Brown went to my house and he got them. So thank you, Larry. Ah, oh, there it is. 
Well, the title of my text is, What Are You Hoping For? And I've illustrated it with this painting, this most famous painting by Mark Chagall called The Three Candles. And to the casual observer, the painting captures our eyes with Chagall's bright and vivid colors, an idyllic setting of a wedding with candles lit and the bride and the groom rising up with angels in dreamlike love and hope. However, if you look closer to the painting, it was painted during Hitler's rise to power and the Nazi invasion of Poland and France. Before the invasion, Chagall fled with his family to Provence in the south of France. And when the Vichy puppet government began to offer increased cooperation with the Germans, Chagall realized it was not safe for him to remain there either. And at one point he was seized by the authorities, but soon after he was released after pressure from the United States. In June 1941, Chagall set sail from Marseille and arrived in New York June 23rd. Now within that context, the painting takes on a different tone. With the clouds of a new conflict already gathering in the world outside, the males embracing arms are cradling and protecting the bride rather than caressing her. Below the women's feet, a dark angel unrolls a trail of red across the earth, prophetic of an unspeakable holocaust to come. And after such an event, how can we ever speak of hope again? Well, nurtured on the promises of God gave to Abraham, the nation of Israel began with high hopes for her future, a future thriving with children, like the stars of the heavens and the sand that is on the seashore and a prosperous future, dwelling in a rich and fertile homeland flowing with milk and honey. But after a short honeymoon, God's bride was lured into idolatry and lascivious ways of the nations around her. And after centuries of obstinate rebellion, God was forced to give Israel a certificate of divorce, making public her adulterous addictions. At that moment, she gained the freedom she always wanted, to be able to do as she pleased. Israel won the right to do as she pleased, but she lost her relationship with the Lord, and with it, his divine protection and care. In the last half of the eighth century BC, the powerful and materialistic Assyrians overran the northern tribes of Israel as effortlessly as Hitler's panzer divisions overran Czechoslovakia and Poland. 135 years later, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded Judah, laid siege to Jerusalem. The city was ravaged, its walls torn down, the temple destroyed with fire. In 1586, Judah ceased to exist, and for all practical purposes, Israel's God died as well. In the ancient Near East, when a god's temple was overrun, that god died in history. In utter agony, Jeremiah cries out, Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is incurable. But I said, truly, this is an affliction and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed. All my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. Israel was childless, with no future, 
homeless, exiled from her land, and abandoned by God. So how do you resurrect hope for a people when God has abandoned them? Well, in chapters 53 and 54, Isaiah addresses her deep wounds, her despair over her lost children and her broken down tent, which speaks not only to a lack of a place to call home, but more importantly, the loss of the sanctuary to worship God. So the basis of Israel's hope is not found in anything they have done or can do, but solely and completely in the work of God's servant, who takes on Israel's role to do for the nation what Israel failed to do. So in Isaiah's fourth servant song, the exiles discover that the servant has accomplished the impossible. These are great verses. Why don't we read them together, okay? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By the knowledge of my righteous servant will justify many for their iniquities he himself bear. What a gift, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in chapter four, or chapter 54, the tone dramatically shifts from the dark anguish of the servant's torturous death to a celebration of a resounding joy and jubilation. Chapter 54 is a love song by God to Zion, his estranged bride, telling her all the things he's gonna do and restore for her. All things are being made new. It's gonna be a new seed, a new land, a new covenant, a new city, a new education, and a new security. We're gonna look at the first of those two this morning, and I'm gonna give you the tools to look at the rest. For the believer, hope is not white-wished optimism based on vague promises that life will somehow get better. Biblical hope is something that finds its source in the living God, whose word is faithful and true, and you can hang your life on his promises, and all his promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, all of them. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. So in our text today, we're gonna to hear Isaiah speak directly to Jeremiah's painful cry as he gave voice to the pain of lost children and their homeland. Before looking at our test, I'd like to give you a metaphor to help you understand how the prophets wrote about the future. Roots and wings, the Spanish poet Juan Roman writes, but let the wings take root and the roots fly. That's how you interpret the prophets. Whenever the prophets depict God's new future, they use images that evoke God's faithful acts of salvation in the past. Once we're grounded in the bedrock of history, the prophets supercharge the old symbols by hyperbole. And Edward Clowney writes, the outward symbols of the old covenant are so intensified with the fullness of the glory of the new covenant that they are transfigured and transformed. The result is that when we comprehend their significance, we are grounded in history of God's faithfulness, but with burning hearts, 
we capture a glimpse of the future beyond our imaginings. In other words, our wings take root and our roots fly. So the goal this morning is to have our little sleepy minds in the pews end up with our hearts burning for what God is doing in our midst. So chapter 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Since all the men are at the men's retreat, do you notice this is addressed to women? The first word of resurrection, just like the resurrection appearances, is addressed to the pain of women. I think that's brilliant. So hope does not deny suffering and pain. It looks it straight in the eye. And the prophet's penetrating gaze goes right to the core of Israel's pain. Zion is barren. Like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Hannah, her womb is shut, which makes the dream of having children impossible. I'm sure most of you at some time have been touched by a woman's private grief over her inability to conceive children. When numbers rise, the entire community may feel a sense of loss and desolation. The stakes are even higher in the ancient world because the inability to bear children exposed a woman to public ridicule and shame and even threatened her status as a wife. But Zion is not only described as barren, She's also one who has never travailed in labor in contrast to one who is married. So this suggests she's either divorced or widowed, and as such, she has no husband or children to care for her. Finally, the word desolate takes her pain to the limit. The root shamam means to be, to lie deserted, become stiff with fear, be terrified, to be cut off from life. The verb takes on violent connotations as well. It describes a life that is torn to pieces and mangled by a bear. When a city becomes desolate, jackals devour it. When the land is desolate, it mourns. When desolation occurs, onlookers are appalled, speechless with horror. There's only one woman in the Bible who was described as desolate. It's David's daughter, Tamar who was assaulted and then abandoned by her half-brother Amnon. And from that day onward, the text says, Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Like Tamar, Zion's been assaulted and ravaged by the Babylonians. But worse, she's been abandoned by God and remains desolate in a foreign land. So that's our memory to anchor us. When we begin to comprehend the depth of Israel's pain, it comes as a shock to us that the first word to this broken woman is sing. The verb run on is better translated, give a ringing, a resounding shout of joy, a term that is used in response to the most remarkable events when fortunes are suddenly, dramatically, and unexplainably reversed. And to hear it addressed to an infertile woman is stunning. Klaus Wasterhaus, or Westerman suggests, how could a barren woman be summoned to sing? This is both meaningless and pitiless. 
But these are the exact feelings of shock that Isaiah wants this metaphor to evoke, for he has something undreamt of and quite incredible to explain. Looking back into Israel's history, we're reminded of the story of Hannah and her rival Peninnah. Peninnah had many children, and she used them to bitterly provoke Hannah because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. After years of unspeakable grief, Hannah poured out her soul to the Lord, and he miraculously opened up her womb with the gift of his son Samuel. With a ringing and resounding shout of joy, she penned a poem of praise that shaped history as she dedicated Samuel to the Lord. So I'd like all the women in the congregation to read Hannah's praise with passion, okay? Ready? My heart. Amen. It's a great poem. Well, now that we've been <clears throat> anchored in, the, in the Israel's memory, we are fueled with now prophetic imagination as we look to the future. Given God's promise, we should not be surprised when the first announcement of salvation in the Gospel of Luke comes to a woman who is barren, Elizabeth. And it's the retelling of Sarah's story of a barren woman who through divine intervention will give birth at a ripe old age. This is followed by a second announcement to Mary, a young virgin who's never had the opportunity of experiencing labor because she's not even yet married. She will conceive life by the Holy Spirit. And when these two women meet, Mary's song of praise which is a recapitulation of Hannah's song centuries earlier, resounds to the glory of God. And when we search the gospel for Tamar's desolate counterpart, we wonder what new twist will the story bring? Whose body will be ravaged like Tamar's? Whose life will be shunned in isolation and forsaken in shame? Who will never marry because of their, his, the sins of others? And as a result, never know the joy of bearing children or seeing their grandchildren. Who is the desolate one in the New Testament? Well, you don't have to look to the New Testament. The prophet himself supplies the answer using the exact same term, shamam, to describe the reaction and horror of seeing this person. It's the servant whose appearance evoked this image when he was beaten beyond recognition. Just as there were many who were appalled, that's Shamam, at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Onlookers were appalled at him. Our Jesus was desolate and the land mourned. Yet, after cut off from the land of the living, Isaiah pronounces, he will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This is one of the clearest professions of resurrection in the Old Testament and the promise of a radical transformation for the people of God. What is true of the servant who never buried will be true of all God's people. Every new birth 
will appear to be as miraculous since indeed it is life from the dead. So Paul says in Ephesians, for God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him. And then like Isaac, the new seed of Israel will be born a promise and not flesh. Let's read this verse together. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And not only will a new seed be supernatural in origin, its fertility will be greater than Israel's physical seed. Why? The children of the desolate one will be many more than the children of her who is married. I think this is a great word for women who are single, who haven't been able to have children, uh, their ability to bear and be fertile. And we see it in happening in John's gospel when Jesus travels to Samaria. And what does he find there? A woman who hasn't married once or even twice, she's been married five times, and now it isn't even with her, she doesn't even have a husband, she just lives with him. This woman is shunned by the women of the town, she has no community, she's old, she is used, and she's very likely childless. What does Jesus do with her? He offers her living water. That's it. One drink, and she offers her living water at the exact moment that she must address her pain. She says, I have no husband. She drinks deeply of that living water, unable to contain herself. She goes into town one day and tells the whole town what Jesus said about her, and overnight she gives birth to a whole new community. The entire town receives Jesus based on her testimony. Incredible. So question, what areas of your life might you label as barren? Where you've been infertile, unable to conceive life? Where is the place all your efforts have been wasted? Where is the life when you've been unfulfilled? Where do you feel you've missed the opportunities you've longed for? Or desolate? Where perhaps have you been ravaged by other people's sins or shunned by other people who you want to belong with? Now here's the point. It is the very place of pain where in the messianic age you become fertile. It's the very place of suffering where you flourish. And this is the mystery revealed to Cleopas and, and his wife on the road to Emmaus. You remember Jesus gave them a strong rebuke, but one that is necessary for all of us to hear because he explained that they were slow of heart to listen to all the prophets had spoken. Tom Wright says, they, like everybody else in Israel, had been reading the Bible through the wrong end of the telescope. They had been singing as a long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering but it was instead the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering, through in particular the suffering which would be taken on himself by Israel's representative, the Messiah. 
Now, Jesus' rebuke was then followed by an extreme act of kindness, and then he gave them new eyes and a new heart to understand the scriptures. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And now, when they come to Isaiah, with that new lens, what happened to them? They said, my, how our hearts burned. With that new lens. When you understand and see through the lens of suffering, your hearts burn. But not only that, it says their eyes were opened and they could see Jesus. And he'd been there all the time. And so often we can't see Jesus because we got the wrong lens. And that's what he did for Mary, Cleopas and Mary. So that's our new children in the kingdom, and now we get a new home, verses two and three. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your dwellings be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you'll spread to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess nations and will people the desolate cities. So once again, the prophet ignites the exile's hope by reminding them of what God had done for their ancestors. The metaphor changes from a mother to a homemaker who is creating a nest for her new family. The term tent is reminiscent of the patriarchs who lived in tents that were mobile rather than in homes, as well as the Lord who dwelt in a tent during Israel's time in the wilderness. Dwellings was the term for the Lord's tabernacle, and the term curtains designates both the linen curtains of the tabernacle and the goat hair curtains of the tent surrounding the tabernacle. So Isaiah reminds the exiles that just as the Lord took 70 persons who entered Egypt and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so the land was filled with them, once a God, again, God could be counted to do the very same thing. Now he fuels those images with prophetic imagination. Isaiah commands us to dream. As my friend Karen DeBasian says, if you're gonna dream, dream big. The problem with most of us is that our dreams are too small. Isaiah is speaking to one who has no children, whose tent is torn down, and he boldly says, don't hold back. This tent needs to be plenty big, and it's gonna have to stand for a long time. And the reason is that this new seed is gonna spread out beyond its borders. The term parats means burst forth or break out, and it's somewhat more violent than the term spreading forth. It's used of breaching a city wall to make it defenseless. So now it appears Sarah's children of promise are gonna have no limitations placed on them. Isaiah broadens the scope of their visions beyond their imaginings. The new seed will not be confined with any geographical boundary. For in the messianic age, God is making the whole earth holy. There is no promised land. The whole earth's holy. There's no boundaries. So this explains why the theme of land practically disappears when you come to the New Testament. There's only two references. One in Matthew 5, 5, which quotes Psalm 37, which is in Psalm 37, blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the land. When it comes to Matthew, it says, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit what? The whole earth. 
And Paul says the same thing. For the promise to Abraham and his seed was not that they would just be heir of the Eretz Israel, they'd be heir of the whole world. That is critical for our understanding, especially today, given the age-old fight over whose land is it? If you're a believer in Christ, it's a total non-issue. It's like when Abraham was with Lot, and he tells Lot, you want to go to the right? I'll go to the left. No problem. So the Palestinians, you want to go here? We'll go to Switzerland. The whole land is ours. The whole earth's holy. And this would demolish any sense of fighting and grabbing because God is so generous. The whole earth, earth is our oyster. Hey, Mahava, let's go. So we have a new seed and we have a new land without borders. And so here we see in this first two things, he's given us three ways to ignite our hope. In summary, we are, it's like building a fire. So when you're camping, what do you need first? You need good kindling. So we ignite hope with the spark of good kindling, which is memory. Memory of God's past faithfulness. Then if you're like me, you pour some fuel over it. And uh, you fuel the flame with seasoned wood to create a roaring fire. And that seasoned wood is prophetic imagination to blow your mind with images beyond your imagining. Now, once you have a fire, you have to do something. You can't just light it. You have to lean into it and warm yourself in its heat. And you do that in this text, I think, by following two commands. The first command is for the exiles to break forth into singing of resounding praise, as if the future was already present. Do you realize that's what we're doing when we're singing? We're bringing God's future promises into the present before the new heavens and the new earth. So when the saints have hope, they sing with full-throated praise. Or I'll put it another way. When you have no hope, sing with full-throated praise and you'll enter into hope. Singing is just as important as preaching. And I'm really appreciative of our, all the folks here who come to sing and prepare stuff for us each week. But um, singing is vital. Secondly, they spare no effort, they don't hold back in their preparation for Zion's new children. So saints who are possessed by hope have a, God's, have a passion for God's mission for the whole world. They are those who spare no effort to boldly cross every political barrier, every racial barrier, every geographical barrier, social boundary, to raise up another generation for the gospel. Last month, while visiting International Justice Mission in Bucharest, we were introduced to Pastor Ioannel Lupus, or we call him Pastor John. We had dinner with him. His church has made Herculean efforts in serving the Ukrainian refugees flooding into Romania since the Russian invasion. And he's one of these guys that just has this exciting gift of faith. They had no money. And I asked him to write a few sentences of what happened. He said, when the war in Ukraine escalated in March 2022, we asked ourselves, how can we be the hands and feet of Jesus? We looked at ourselves at our meager resources and said, God, this is all we have. It's like bringing to Jesus your few loaves of bread. 
Please use us so we can be a blessing for the people that are running from war. In the first two weeks, our budget was consumed with every lay spent, helping hundreds of people who came every day at the transit center at our church. By God's grace, we have now established five centers in Bucharest, and they have serviced more than 10,000 Ukrainians with shelter and food, along with the gift of God's love through the work of countless volunteers. He says, we continue to labor and serve with great joy, declaring that everything we do is because of God's faithfulness and for his glory. We're not doing something extraordinary. This is what the church should do. <laughs> there was one time someone donated a building for one of the centers, and then the guy said, I gotta put it up for sale. <clears throat> so what did Pastor John do? He just prayed that it wouldn't sell. <laughs> and it didn't sell. And the next year he said the same thing, you'll have to evacuate because I gotta put it for sale. So Pastor John prayed, and it didn't sell again. And that's just his spirit. He's just the most delightful Christian. <clears throat> and it was just such a, a wonderful example to me of what can happen. While the tyrants are destroying the world, we're finding all the new birth of new life and a new land uh, leading people to life. So what are you hoping for? For those who lean into the fire, Isaiah offers us a vision of what we will see on the horizon at the end of history. And I'll ask the worship team to come back up as we read this together. Why don't we uh, alternate? Why don't the women take that first trophy and the men will read the second? <clears throat> okay, ready ladies? Lift up your eyes, a little louder. All right, men, say it in your heart. Who has borne these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought these? Behold, I alone was left. And where have these come? And all together, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my single to the people. Bring your sons and your daughters. Now go back to the Ukrainian slide if you would. When you die, what's gonna be the first thing you see? You're gonna look on the horizon and you're gonna see all the people you influence, not in just your duration, but what happened to the next generations. And these are gonna be all your children. And you're gonna weep. And it just starts with one. And so my blessing for you is may the memories of God's saving acts ignite the flame of hope in your heart. May the fire become a roaring fire by the prophetic imagination that allows you to dream big dreams for the kingdom of God. And may the warmth of God's love burn in your heart so that you may spare no effort to bring the gospel to a generation not yet born. Amen. Be thou my vision. Right, we can't live without vision. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, 
by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.